Revelation 21, we're going to pick up in verse 9. Revelation 21 and verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed, on the east three gates, and on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square. Its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth burial, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophaz, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold. Transparent as glass. Transparent as glass. Let's pray. Father, as we open this section, we are so dependent upon you for light and understanding. Help us to see and understand what, what you have revealed to John here and what John's trying to communicate to us the best way that he can in language that we can, that we can try to understand using these, these symbols and using these things that at least we can identify with trying to describe the glory of heaven. So Father, help us not get caught up and the sentimental understanding of our future home. But help us to see what you've revealed here. The glory that you've revealed here. But we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when you look at 
this section and where we are in the book of Revelation, we're, we're, we're coming to the end of the book, right? So in other words, the books be, we're about to complete the book, right? So to complete something, you know what it means. It's finished. It's done. You started something. You bring it to completion. Uh, you ever known people that just never complete anything? They drive you crazy. Start, start, start. Projects everywhere. They get lost and stuff. You know, it's like, man, you just never complete anything, do you? But you understand, when you start something, the goal is to finish it, to complete it. And so what is, what is, is underlying that, then, is purpose. Because if you really don't know the purpose of what you're doing, then how can you really know if you've completed it, right? You could work on something and somebody say, what is that? I have no idea what it is. Why are you doing it? I have no idea why I'm doing it. When are you going to be finished? I have no idea. I don't know what it is. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know the purpose of why I'm doing it. So you, you get the point. If you start something, it's going to be brought to completion. It's going to be finished. So, so underlying that is a sense of purpose. In other words, there's a plan. There's a plan here. Now, as you do that, that plan may involve things, and things may come up unexpected and so forth. You, you know, you have a plan, you work the plan, you plan for the unexpected, right? But you're going to get to a completion. You're going to get to a goal. You're going to get to a, a, a finished, finishing something. Go all the way back, and we've, we've looked at this as we've started looking at this section where John's talking about heaven. You go all the way back to the, to the very beginning, right? Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He started something. He created something. That something was perfect. And then sin enters the picture in Genesis 3. And there's the fall. And then we spin from that point all the way until we get to Revelation 21. Seeing this unfold, this sinful, uh, how sin has wrecked God's creation and see it unfold. But in that process, we see something beautiful too, right? I mean, there's beauty in it. We also see a lot of ugliness, don't we? We see an awful lot of ugliness. And that's kind of like life, right? We see every day we get up, there can be beauty, there can be ugly. But the point is, God started something. He created, and He created perfect. Then sin messes it up. Then we get to Revelation 21 and 22. And what's happening? God is bringing it to completion. He started it. He's going to complete it. He will finish it. And it's going to be finished, and it's going to be completed in His time, in His way, according to His plan, not me. He doesn't consult me. You realize that? He doesn't consult you either. He doesn't appear to you and say, hey, listen, you know, I really want to bring off this new heavens and new earth thing. You know, I really do. How do you think I should go about it? You go, I'm glad you asked me. I'm full of opinions. I, I think you should do this. And this. He doesn't do that. He's had a plan from before the foundation, before he even created anything. This has been put in motion, and he's going to bring it to a completion. He's going to complete it. It's our journey. You remember how we looked a few weeks ago at, at, at our journey? This is our journey here and now. We're on this journey. We're on this pilgrimage. This is not our home. Isaac Watts. He, he writes a hymn, and, and it's beautiful. Uh, and, and, and listen to the words. This is the last stanza of the hymn. Then he says, Then let our songs abound, and every tear be dry. 
What are we doing right now? We're marching through Emmanuel's ground. We're marching through Emmanuel's ground. Where are we going? To fair worlds on high. You see, that's where we're going. And it's going to end in death, or it's going to end with Christ coming back. And then he says, we're marching, we're marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching to Zion, the beautiful city of God. That's the end. That's the completion. That's when our journey's over, when we're in what John is describing now, when we are there and we are with God, we are with our Savior. We know something of this. I mean, we looked at this too a couple of weeks ago. We know something is beyond this journey, right? There's something there. Remember how we looked in Ecclesiastes and, and, and uh, Solomon says, eternity's placed in the heart of every person. It's there. Even the most hardcore atheist, even the most gospel-denying person you can think of, it's there because they're created in the image of God. They suppress it, Paul says in Romans 1. They suppress it and suppress it. They worship the creation instead of the creator. But it's there in every human heart. Because we are all created in the image of God and God placed it there. We know something's beyond this. What is beyond this? For the unbeliever, what's beyond this is hell. For the unbeliever, what is beyond this is the judgment and wrath of God for all eternity. And it's hell. We've seen that judgment, right? We've seen that in the book of Revelation. But for the believer... What is it? What's beyond this? It's heaven. It's heaven. So what in the world is heaven? What is it? I mean, what is heaven? John tries, and he's going to tell us the best way that he can. Because he's describing something and he sees it, but he's trying to put it in, in a language that we can understand. He's, he's describing something that we are not in any way familiar with. You understand that? I mean, he's trying to describe something here that, that, that we're not familiar with. We just started watching a, a show. I forget the name of it. But anyway, the gist of the show is that there's this group that lives in the mountains in Kentucky. And they never come down. Generation after generation, they don't come to civilization. They don't come down to the towns. They live up there. They have their own code, their own law, their own way of doing things. And it's been going on for hundreds of years. Okay? Been going on for hundreds of years. Well, one of them decides to go down. And what happens is he goes down and he's curious and he's looking. He meets this girl. And what's interesting is in this relationship as he meets this girl, they're trying to communicate. They're trying to talk. And she's talking to him about life in civilization. And he's thinking and trying to translate that into mountain life. And just the simplest of things like dating. You ever been on a date? What's a date? Just simple things like that. So she's trying to figure out, well, let's see, okay, dating is like this. And then he goes, oh, it's like this from, from his culture. And she understands a little bit of that from his culture. And she goes, yeah, 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 it's like that. And they're trying to communicate about what would be the simplest just we take for granted. You know, a person from civilization, you talk about, hey, have you been on the phone lately? I have no idea. What's a phone? What are you talking about? 
D.A. Carson gives this example, and I love this example. He says, imagine that all of a sudden you're plunged into some jungle tribe that has never, civilization hadn't reached at all. And they're still living the way they've lived for thousands of years. No modern nothing. And all of a sudden, you're plunged into that civilization. And you're given the task of teaching them about electricity. He said, how would you go about it? You ought to teach them about electricity. And he gives, he gives a rather lengthy uh, analogy. He gives a rather a, a, a lengthy, goes into this a little bit. The gist of what he says is, is this. I mean, you, you would look at these people and you, your task is to t- tell them about electricity. And, and what would you say? Well, you, you got to understand, there's some kind of power, some kind of force, some kind of fire that comes through the vines. And you take a vine and you plug it to your house and you have a sun in your room all the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, maybe they could track with that. You see the point? This is what John's doing. He's trying to describe. He sees it. He's trying to describe it. He's trying to talk about it. And and, and he's trying to tell us what he's seeing. And So much of this we're just not familiar with. But there are some things that come through crystal clear. You see, the first thing that we saw in this, there's, there's really four sections in, in this section where John is talking about heaven. And the first one is that it's new. You remember that? The first eight verses of chapter 21? It's new. There's a new heaven, new earth, and there's no more sea. So there's no more chaos. There's no more evil. It's been purged. It's new. It is a new heaven and new earth. Genesis 1 and 2. Revelation 21 and 22, the completion. It is Eden, the perfection of Eden, raised. Raised to an unbelievable standard. Raised to a glory that we can't even begin to imagine. And so we see that. It's it's new. What we're seeing in this section, I think, is what, what comes through this section. Is it's complete. It's complete. There's nothing else to do. There's nothing else to be built. There's nothing else to be added to it. It's complete. It's final. And then in the third section, I think what we'll see when we get to the end of chapter 21 is this great, great glory that's there. And then it ends with what is is so beautiful about heaven. It's the very presence of God. It's the very presence of God. Of God. So what is it? Well, what John I think is going to show in this is that it, what it is, is it's complete. It's final. It's complete. It's God's completion of everything. There's first, I think, what he, 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 he talks about this. There's a complete people. And then he talks about the place itself and how it is complete. It is finished. Look at how he starts this in verse 9. This is what he says. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and he spoke to me. This is, this is obvious connection with chapter 17. If you remember back in chapter 17, this is what we read in verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. There's been two great cities in the book of Revelation. There was Babylon, evil, 
sinful, fallen Babylon. What's happened to Babylon? What's happened to that city? It's been judged. It's done away with, right? But guess what? There's another great city. And that's the New Jerusalem. So there's an obvious connection going back to 17.1. And then verse 9, Then came one of the seven who had the seven bowls full of the last plagues at one of these angels. And he spoke to me. He's speaking to me. Now what John's going to do is he's going to draw heavily. We've already seen, and it becomes even more obvious in the other sections. He's going to draw heavily from the Old Testament. One of the reasons why, when early on, I, start, I, I wanted to talk about a journey and to start in the Old Testament and kind of go through and see in the New Testament how the, it, it, both, both the Old Testament, the Old Testament believers talked about it as a journey, their own pilgrimage. In the New Testament, it's talked about a journey and pilgrimage. And you remember last week for communion, we talked about the presence of God, God's presence. And looking at his presence in the Old Testament, corporately, not individually, but his presence. And one of the reasons why I wanted to draw from Old Testament and New Testament and bring it into full view so that we could see it is because this is exactly what John's doing. It's almost as if he's taking from the Old Testament and it's almost as if he's taking everything that God has revealed up to this point and saying, here's the culmination of it all. This is where it ends. This is the completeness of it all. And how glorious it is. How glorious it is. So he's going to pull. And one of the places he's going to pull from heavily is Ezekiel. Ezekiel 40 through 48. He's going to pull from that last section of Ezekiel when Ezekiel sees that that vision of that temple, and John's going to pull from that and show, here it is. And so this angel comes to him. He's speaking to him, and he says to him, this is what he says to him, come, it's a command. It's not, hey, if you got anything else, you know, if you're not doing anything, you're sitting around, come on. No, it's come, I want to show you something. What's he going to show him? He's going to show him the bride. This is the bride. The bride's the wife of the Lamb. We've already seen this. Chapter 19, there's the marriage supper of the Lamb. We've already seen the bride, and we've already made the connections with bride and wife. In the Old Testament, Israel was the bride. Israel was the wife. She's unfaithful. God's the faithful husband. She's unfaithful. We see this in a number of places in the Old Testament. We see it in Ezekiel chapter 16 spelled out beautifully. We see it in the whole relationship between Hosea and Gomer in the the Old Testament. Then we get to the New Testament and we see the language of bride again. And we see Paul saying things to Christians, to the Corinthians like, I have betrothed you to one husband. We'll see it in the book of Ephesians when we read through chapter 5. Bride, wife of the Lamb. What is he seeing? He's seeing the completed people of God. The completed people of God. He gets hard to follow because what John will do, and he's done this throughout the book of Revelation, and it's just the nature of apocalyptic literature, he's going to take metaphors and he's going to mix them. He's going to do it, and he's about to do it here. He's already done it to us in in the first part of this. 
So this is what he says, I come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, coming down out of heaven from God. John, is it a bride or is it a city? I want to show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So I go, and what do I see? I see a city. He's mixing metaphors. Lion, lamb. What did John see? On one side of the throne, a lion. On the other side of the throne, a lamb. No, he sees Christ. How? As a lion, as a lamb. He's mixing metaphors. It's what apocalyptic literature does all the time. It's what John's done throughout the book of Revelation. What is he seeing? He's seeing a city. What is the city representing? Well, as we'll see, what the city's representing is the completed people of God. Just like the bride. The wife. And he says here that when he looks, he sees the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. We've dealt with this in the first part of chapter 21. It's coming from God. Okay, man didn't make this. It's coming from God. It's not anything of the earth. And we dealt with this in the first part too, this chapter of the new Jerusalem. Okay, the new Jerusalem. The old Jerusalem was not complete. In a lot of ways, the old Jerusalem was sinful, right? This is the new Jerusalem. Why? It's complete. What did the old Jerusalem symbolize? The presence of God, the place of worship, the place of sacrifice. As incomplete as that was, now it's complete. Now it's complete. So he sees this holy city Jerusalem coming down from heaven, having the glory of God. Don't overlook that. It's having the glory of God. And he says here, uh, it's radiance. By the way, when you go back and you read Ezekiel chapter 40, what you see is Ezekiel's carried to a mountain. Ezekiel showed this vision. There's also a a man there who's going to have a measuring rod. And what happens in Ezekiel's vision is there's these measurements that take place. And what we see throughout that section of Ezekiel 40 through 48 is he talks about the glory of what he's seeing. The magnificence of what he's seeing. I mean, it's a glory that we're, we, we, we were just not familiar with. This is a glory that's not of this earth. It has the glory of God. It's radiance. It's another way of talking about the presence of God there. And he talks about it like a most rare jewel, like jasper, like a jasper, clear as crystal. We've already seen jasper connected with the throne of God in chapter 4. That vision of the throne of God, it's connected there. Jasper is connected there. And then he says this in verse 12. It had a great high wall. Now hang on to that. It's great and it's a high wall. See, here's a question in my mind. This is heaven, right? What's going to be purged out? He's already said it's new heavens, new earth. There's no more sea. So there's no more evil. There's no more chaos. There's no more enemies. They've been purged out. Then why a wall? You understand why cities had walls, right? It's to protect you. It's a protection. You can't have the enemies come in. And you have these gates. Close the gates. We've all seen the old movies, right? Storm the wall. You know, if you can get it through the wall, you got the city. and so, so why a wall if this is heaven? There's no more enemies. See, I think, again, it's just another indication that what we're dealing with here, these metaphors, this, this symbolic communication of what he's trying to show this is. 
So it has this great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels. And on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates and on the north three gates and on the south three gates and on the west three gates. The 12 tribes of Israel. The Old Testament. I mean, this is clearly what he's seeing in this. This is, this is the 12 tribes of Israel on these gates. So, so this, is, this is the old covenant people of God. And then notice what else he sees. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the what? 12 apostles. The 12 apostles of the Lamb. You see... I think what he's doing in a beautiful way is he's showing this is the completed, total redeemed people of God. Old covenant, new covenant, these 12 apostles. Here's an interesting question, too, that I thought about. Which ones? Would Judas be included? Matthias took Judas's place, right? What about Paul? It doesn't say. You see, it's not listed. It's, even in the tribes, it's not listed. It doesn't say. It's Again, it's, it's this metaphor. It's this symbolic way of showing what I think he's seeing. I'm going to show you the bride. I'm going to show you the wife of the Lamb. And when I looked, I saw a city. And in that city, this description of this city, 12 Old Covenant, 12 New Covenant. What he's seeing is the completed people, the completed redeemed people of God. That's what he's seeing. What is heaven? Heaven's where we're going to be as the redeemed people of God. And listen, not one single person will miss out. Not one single person that is redeemed by the blood of the Lamb will miss out. I will lose none. Isn't that what he said in John 10? I'm the chief shepherd. I will lose none. Now, if you're an unbeliever, you won't be there. If you're an unbeliever, this is not for you. You're, you're going to be in another place. But if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're part of this. So it's the completed people of God. In verse 15, he talks about this place. It's a completed place. See, I think the, the, the imagery of just completeness, completeness, completeness. And notice what he says here in verse 15. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. Again, Ezekiel. Ezekiel has this vision of this and there's one that's measuring this. And notice this, the city lies four square, its length same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length with its height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. Still hadn't figured out quite what he means by that. Other than to say, it doesn't matter how you measure it, this is what it is. It's complete. Use whatever measurement you want. It's finished. I don't know. But here's the thing, it's four square, the city's got four corners, it's a square. The ancient, the ancient writers said about Babylon, 
that Babylon was laid out in a square. Is there something going on here again with this subtle comparison of Babylon, the ancient, evil, wicked city, and yet here's the new Jerusalem? And then he goes on and he talks about the measurements. He says as he measured it, he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stati, its length and width and height are equal. It's a perfect cube. Some have said this was a pyramid. And it just doesn't sound like a pyramid to me. It's a perfect cube. And so as he measures this, it's a perfect cube. He measured its wall. Some have said, well, the 144 cubits, which is about 200 feet. By the way, the 12,000 stati, about 1,500 miles. This thing's huge. About 1,500 miles. Some have said the wall, 144 cubits, about 200 200 feet or so is, is the height of the wall. But it's already, he's already said it was a great wall high. I think he's talking about the thickness of the wall here. But regardless, he also measured his wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. So you have this perfect cube, right? There's only one other place in the Bible where a perfect cube appears. It's in the Old Covenant. And it is the Holy of Holies. It's the only other place a perfect cube appears. In the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies was 15 by 15. Perfect cube. In the temple, the Holy of Holies was 30 by 30. Perfect cube. You get the picture here? What is this? What is the New Jerusalem? It is the Holy of Holies. What about the Holy of Holies? The very presence of God. We will see this in the very last section when what John says, we will see Him face to face. The completed people of God, this completed place, this place of perfection, this place of beauty, and he goes on and he describes it here as the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. Dorinda gave me a necklace. Mark, I think Becky made these, right? With these jewels, these 12 jewels that are, that are mentioned here. In this, this, uh, it's not a necklace, it's actually a bracelet of, of the 12 jewels and which she made as a reminder of this glorious place and so forth. And John goes through this list of these uh, jewels. The foundations of the wall, the city were adorned. By the way, miscuo. Remember that word? Miscuo, adorned in the first part of chapter 21 when he says this about the church. He says this about the people of God. As a bride prepared, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, we get cosmetics. She's, she's adorned. She's beautified. She's ready. And so here it is again. We see this. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. Now what's interesting, as you see these materials... 
The language in the Greek indicates that it's not just that they are adorned with this, but they are the actual material that it's made out of. It's amazing. So we see this. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. Notice verse 18. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. Some have said clear as glass, obviously this is not an earthly substance. Gold's not clear as glass. But it could mean, it could be translated, it could be taken in the sense of shiny. Shiny. So we see in, in, in verse 19, the foundations of the wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth burial, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophaz, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates? What about the twelve gates? They were twelve pearls. They were twelve pearls. Amazing. Each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city? Notice it's street, not streets. He's seeing one main street in the city. Sometimes we, you know, we, we think of you know, the streets of gold. He's seeing one street of gold. And it was pure gold. And again, here's this language of transparent as glass. Shiny, possibly. Transparent gold, certainly not an earthly substance, right? What is he seeing? He's seeing this completed place. And all of its beauty and all of its glory. Again, pulling heavily from Ezekiel in a lot of this in the last part of Ezekiel. We see the completed redeemed people of God. We see this perfect place. Matthew Poole, old Puritan commentator, he said, look, we can get so caught up in trying to figure out this and that and all this and that. Listen, this is the bottom line. It is a most glorious place. <laughs> That's it. It is a most glorious place place unlike anything we've ever seen unlike anything of this earth right it is a most glorious place I want to close with this I want you to go to the book of Philippians this idea of completion God bringing this to completion. By the way, let me say this too about the 12 stones. We'll, 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 we'll play with this just a second, all right? Because it comes up. Why 12 stones? And, and the jewels are mentioned, you know, exactly what, what do they equate to in ancient jewels, you know, and there, there's, there's some debate about that. But, but why 12? Well, obviously 12, we've seen the number 12, right? But where did it come from? Some say that it comes from the breastplate of the high priest. This is where we see these jewels coming from the breastplate of the high priest. And we see that, for example, in Exodus chapter 28. Another more wild interpretation of this, which I don't see at all, is that it's actually the dress of the king of Tyre and Ezekiel. 
the king of Tyre. And I'm like, well, why would John be pulling from the pagan king? And if they, the king of Tyre is symbolizing Satan, why would he be pulling from that and talking about, I, I don't think that at all. There's another interesting one, though. I personally think it's probably coming from the breastplate. There's another interesting one. If you look at the way he describes the directions of the gates, and you look at the way the jewels are listed, now, I'm not into zodiac signs, all right? But those that, that, that are familiar with that say that what he does is he lays this out exactly opposite the way the zodiac appears. And that has led some to say that what he's doing is he's, he's in an underhanded way, not an underhanded way, but, but in a way he's, he's sort of giving, giving a slap to paganism. This ain't paganism. This is the glory of God. It's interesting. I still think he's probably drawing, just like he's doing out of Ezekiel from the breastplate. All right, so Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Paul writes to the Philippians. And he says in verse 3, after his introduction, he says this in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always, in every prayer of mine, for you all making... uh, in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy. Why? Because of your partnership, fellowship. Your partnership, your fellowship in the gospel. In the context, what the Philippians did, one of the things that they, they, they were involved in was giving of money, financial resources, and, and Paul saying that you had this fellowship, this partnership in the gospel. But notice what he says, you had this from the first day until now. So from the very first day that you trusted Christ, the very first day the gospel came, you've had this fellowship in the gospel, which included financial support and so forth. But then he says this, verse 6. In this prayer, when he says that I thank God in all my remembrance of you, verse 6, and I am sure of this, I'm confident of this. I know this. That He, who's the He, it's God, that He, who began a good work, where? And you. I'm confident of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to what? See it? He's going to bring it to completion. I'm confident of this. I know this. God began a work in you? In the gospel? Yeah. You know what he's going to do? He's going to complete it. Wonder as you may. He's going to complete it. He will do it. I'm confident of this, Paul says. 
And notice what he says. He's going to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, some have taken this number of ways. I take it to mean basically Paul's way of saying at his coming. I take it as Paul's way of saying he's going to complete it until the end. Are we not seeing the end in Revelation 21 and 22? Are we not seeing the completion of what God started and gathering together the completed redeemed people of God in this completed glorious place and bring it down to the individual level if He saved you and if you've believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and if the Spirit of God indwells you. He started a work in the Gospel in you. He's going to complete it In other words, you're going to be there. You're going to be there. In our Lord's Prayer in John chapter 17, Jesus prayed this. As He's praying, He prays for the apostles, He prays for the disciples, and then He prays for everybody that's going to believe on Me. He's praying for us. And He says this, He says, Father, I pray that the ones that You've given to Me I want them to be with me. Be with you where? Where I am. Why? So that they can behold my glory. He's prayed it. Paul says, I'm confident of it. It's going to be completed. He's going to bring it to completion. Paul will go on in Philippians and say in chapter 3, listen, our citizenship is not here. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's, That's when it all gets completed. You see? It's when it all gets completed. There's another beautiful hymn that we sing. On Jordan's stormy banks. And there's a section in that hymn. when it says, When I shall reach that happy place and be forever blessed. Then comes a question. I've sang this song, this hymn, a lot. I've never thought about it. But there, this is a question. And the question is this. When... Shall I see my Father's face and in His bosom rest? It's put as a question. When am I going to see His face and in His bosom rest? You know when? The new Jerusalem. Because He's going to finish it. And He's going to bring it to completion. Take it to the bank. Take it to the bank. Now, if you're not in Christ, this is not for you. If you're not in Christ, He will complete something for you, but it's not going to be the glory of heaven. What will be completed for you is to face His wrath for all eternity in hell. All you have to do is turn to Christ Turn from your sin and trust Him.
The one who died on the cross is buried and raised the third day. And you trust Him. You trust Him. Let's pray together. Father, as we think about these things...